Our sermon passage this evening comes from another small book, the book of Philemon in the New Testament. You get another gold star if you can find this one. We looked at the shortest book in the Old Testament this morning. Philemon's not the shortest book in the New Testament, but it is one of the shortest. We'll read the entire letter together. Paul's letter to the Philemon, to Philemon, God's holy word. Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, this is your word, which you have given to your people to receive instruction, 
and encouragement, conviction, rebuke, strength for our faith, and a knowledge of the living God. We pray that you would illumine our hearts, that your light would shine into the dark recesses of our souls, and that we would receive the good news that is found in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Drive, drive, we shot a man. Those were the first words Harold Morris's so-called friends said to him as they jumped into the car where he was waiting for them to return from the grocery store one evening. Harold Morris was a young man who had received several athletic scholarships to several universities out of high school. He was the captain of the basketball team and the football team and the baseball team. But he had decided that he wasn't going to go that route. He wanted to drink booze and chase women. So that's exactly what it did after he graduated from high school. It took him less than one year to ruin his entire life. A couple of so-called friends and him decided to leave South Carolina and go to Atlanta to visit the party scene there for an entire week, visiting all of the clubs. And they did that, and at the end of the week, they decided to go visit the apartment of a couple of young girls they had met. When they arrived at the apartment, the girls were not there. So Harold waited out in the car outside of the apartment, and the two so-called friends decided to go down the street to the grocery store, and unbeknownst to Harold, they had decided to rob the grocery store. Well, when they did that and pulled guns on 12 people there in the grocery store, one of the men had a gun and decided to try and save the day. But instead of saving the day, he was shot. He was too slow, and one of the so-called friends shot him. And they ran immediately from the grocery store back to the car where Harold was waiting. They jumped in and they said, drive, drive, we just shot a man. And Harold began to drive all through the night, all the way back to South Carolina. He dropped off his two buddies, and he didn't hear from them again for an entire year. And the next time they heard from them was when the FBI came to his door and charged him with capital murder because the man they had shot had died five minutes later. And the two friends had collaborated together to pin the murder on Harold Morris. And so Harold was convicted to two life sentences in the Georgia penitentiary for a crime he had not committed. As a result of his time in prison, he became a very hardened man, and it led to him being put onto death row and the majority of his time in prison in isolation. And it was during that time that two people in Harold's life had heard about what was going on and began to share the gospel with Harold. One was an old high school buddy who was a medically retired Marine who had heard that Harold was in jail, and so he came to visit him with his wife and to share the gospel with Harold. And the second was a young 12-year-old boy who used to walk past the prison yard every day after school and struck up a friendship with Harold and told him that he needed Jesus. And that young 12-year-old boy began to witness to Harold about the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of the work of these people in Harold's life, 
he became a follower of Jesus Christ. And he considered that his first pardon. So Herod was pardoned by Christ. And only a few years later, the governor of Georgia granted Herod a full pardon from his life sentences, having realized that he had been set up by the other two friends and not committed the crime at all. And he considered that his second pardon. So if you ever heard of Harold Morris's name, he became famous for telling his story and his testimony in a book and then in a documentary called Twice Pardoned, which you can find on YouTube or online. It's a great story as Harold tells how God worked in his life to, to pardon him, not just once, but twice. Well, in Paul's letter to Philemon, we meet another man who is twice pardoned. And that's the man Onesimus, a runaway slave. So what do we need to know about Paul's letter to Philemon as we begin to unpack it? We need to know this first. It was written by Paul, obviously. And it was likely written by Paul during his first imprisonment in Rome in the year 62 A.D. Now you'll notice we opened the letter. It was written primarily to a man named Philemon. But a few other people are mentioned at the beginning of the letter. Aphia and Archippus. And it's thought that these are probably Philemon's wife and son. And you'll also note that the letter is addressed to the church in Philemon's house. So Philemon is the leader of the church in the city in which he lives. And what's also important to note is that Philemon was also written at the same time as Paul's letter to the Colossians and Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon were written by Paul while he was in jail in Rome for the gospel of Christ in the year 62 A.D. Now, Philemon has all of the characteristics of a normal letter, right? You'd expect there's an introduction and a greeting, there's a thanksgiving for Philemon, there's the body of the letter, and then it has a final greeting and benediction. And so it follows all of Paul's other letters for the most part. And so what I want to do as we begin is I want to start with a summary of Philemon And then we'll get into a little bit more detail about the letter. So here's a nice one-paragraph summary of what Philemon is all about. A slave named Onesimus has run away from his master, a man named Philemon, who is a leader of the church in the city of Colossae in modern-day Turkey. Onesimus finds Paul, who is imprisoned in Rome, for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And under Paul's tutelage, Onesimus comes to faith in Christ. Paul then convinces Onesimus that it is his his Christian duty to return to his master to reconcile. And Paul sends Onesimus back to Colossae with this letter in hand, exhorting Philemon to receive Onesimus back now as his brother in Christ, granting him full pardon. That's a summary of the letter. And here's the central idea I want us to consider and hang on to, is that our pardon by Christ changes everything. Our pardon by Christ changes everything. So we're going to break the letter in two, kind of like we did with Obadiah this morning. We'll consider first the first pardon by Jesus in verses 8 through 16, and then the second pardon by Philemon in verses 17 through 20. The first pardon by Jesus 
in 8 through 16, and the second pardon by Philemon in verses 17 through 20. So let's take a look at the first pardon that Onesimus receives from Christ in verses 8 through 16. You'll notice that Paul informs, firstly, Philemon that Onesimus has come to faith in Christ. He says this in verse 10, Onesimus is my child whose father I became in prison. Right? Onesimus has found Paul while he's in prison and through Paul's tutelage and sharing of the gospel, Onesimus becomes his son in the faith. In verse 13, he says, Onesimus has served me for the sake of the gospel. In verse 16, he wants uh, Philemon to receive Onesimus back and have him back forever as a beloved brother in the Lord. So Onesimus has believed the gospel. And Paul wants Philemon to know that right from the start of his letter to him. So you might imagine Onesimus hearing Paul say something like this. Onesimus, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's from Ephesians chapter 2, one of the letters Paul wrote during this time. Or maybe something like this. Onesimus, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you were dead in your trespasses. But God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's from Colossians chapter 2, the other letter Paul wrote during this time. So Christ's pardon of Onesimus begins to take effect in his life. His belief guides his behavior. So Paul next convinces Philemon that it is his Christian duty as a slave to return to the master he has betrayed. So you might imagine Paul saying something like this to Onesimus. Onesimus, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. That's from Colossians chapter 3. Or maybe he'll say something like this. Onesimus, obey your earthly master with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or or is free. That's from Ephesians chapter 6. What has the gospel changed in Onesimus? 
Well, consider this. Onesimus is willing to return to Philemon despite the consequences. Now get yourself back into Onesimus' mind. You're in the midst of the Roman Empire. And for a runaway slave, there are very strict consequences, the most severe of which is death. But Onesimus, because of his faith in Christ and under the instruction of Paul, understands that it is his Christian duty to return to reconcile with Philemon, to seek forgiveness and to make things right. And Onesimus is willing to do that. Now, it's interesting in verse 11, take a look there, you'll maybe have a footnote under Onesimus' name. Paul says, I appeal to you, Philemon, for my child Onesimus. And you'll see that the name Onesimus means useful. And so Paul makes a play on words with Onesimus' name when he says this. Formerly, in verse 11, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. So Onesimus is actually living up to his name now. He's useful. He's no longer a useless slave. He is a useful slave. So the gospel has changed Onesimus in that way. And not only that, but in verse 13, Paul says, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But Paul's going to send him back. Anyways, so Onesimus is not only willing to return to Philemon to reconcile despite the consequences, but he's willing to do that first and then come back to Paul in prison in Rome to serve him for the sake of the gospel, the very reason Paul is imprisoned. What do you think that means for Onesimus? He's going to be right next to Paul in the chains if he continues to do that work. And Onesimus, because of his first pardon in Christ, is willing to do that. The gospel has changed Onesimus, as Paul says in verse 16, into a beloved brother. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, grew up in the British Royal Navy, sailing aboard ships from the age of 11 until the age of 30. He was a rebellious, deserting, arrogant insubordinate sailor who lived with moral abandon. It sounds like a lot of sailors I know. He wrote once of himself, I sinned with a high hand, and I made it my study to tempt and seduce others. He worked aboard slave ships with slave traders in Africa and even served as first mate and captain of several slave ships. But it wasn't until he got caught in a storm off the coast of Ireland that Newton was converted to Christ and his transformation began. Now, he made the decision to continue to serve in the slave trade, hoping that he would be able to restrain the worst of its evils and be able to promote Christ in the lives of his crews and the slaves he had on board. But eventually he left life at sea and was ordained as an Anglican minister, and then he became one of the driving forces behind the abolition of slavery in Great Britain, which he wrote was a business at which my heart now shudders. The gospel changed John Newton. The gospel changed 
Onesimus. How about you? How has the gospel changed you? Think back over your life since the time you first believed. What has the gospel changed in your life? Has it changed anything? Every vile thing about us, Jesus can change. Every dark corner of our souls, Jesus can shine with marvelous light. What still needs to change in your life? The gospel can change that. Onesimus has received his first and greatest pardon from Christ through the ministry of Paul. But as is so true of our great Savior, we receive pardon upon pardon upon pardon. And a second pardon yet awaits Onesimus. And that's the second pardon by Philemon, which we read about in verses 17 through 20. Look there with me. Paul writes, So Philemon, if you consider me your partner... Receive Onesimus as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Now, what's interesting is Paul asks Philemon to now carry out his Christian duty toward his slave, right? Already Onesimus has been charged by Paul to carry out his Christian duty towards his master, and now Paul uses his influence quite heavily in the letter to say things like this, I am bold enough to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, right? He's really commanding him what to do, isn't he? But he's giving him a little bit of grace there. Or in verse 10, I appeal to you for my child. Not just Onesimus, your slave. Paul's saying, my child. I'm sending my very heart to you, he says in verse 12. In verses 13 and 14, he said, I would have been glad to keep Onesimus with me, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. And then in verse 20, he says, Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart. So you might imagine Paul saying something like this to Philemon. Philemon, treat your slave justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. That's from Colossians chapter 4. How about this? Philemon, do the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. That's from Ephesians 
chapter 5, noting all of these similarities here between the letters. Well, that leads us to the most beautiful passage of this letter. So don't miss this. Here it is. Paul reminds Philemon of Jesus by Paul's own example. All right, Paul reminds Philemon of Jesus by Paul's own example. And the way that he does this is he reminds Philemon of three different aspects of Christ's atonement for him. The first aspect comes from verse 17. He says, Philemon, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. That's the concept of substitution, right? Instead of Paul showing up on Philemon's doorstep, it's Onesimus. And Paul tells Philemon, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. Don't you know that that is exactly what Jesus Christ is interceding for you right now in heaven? Father, receive her as you would receive me. Father, receive him as you would receive me. The concept of substitution is a beautiful concept. And Paul is reminding Philemon of substitution, of what Christ has done for Philemon and what Paul is now doing for Onesimus and what he expects Philemon to do for Onesimus as well. Well, that's the first aspect of Christ's atonement that Paul calls to mind. The second one comes from the following verse in verse 18. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. If he has wronged you at all, (laughs) Onesimus has wronged Philemon. He's run away. And how do you think Onesimus got from Colossae in Turkey to Rome in Italy 1,500 miles away? A slave doesn't have that kind of money. So likely, Onesimus is not just a runaway slave. He's also a thief. He's likely stolen enough from Philemon in order to make that trip from Colossae all the way to Rome. If he has wronged you or owes you anything, you better believe Onesimus has wronged Philemon and owes him likely a great deal. And what does Paul say? Charge that to my account. This is the concept of imputation, where our sin is charged to Christ's account. And don't you know this is exactly what Jesus is praying for you to his Father? Lord, if she has wronged you in any way, if she owes you anything, charge that to my account. If he has wronged you in any way, if he owes you anything, Father, charge that to my account. What a beautiful concept, imputation. And what's so great about Christ's atonement, and it's a double imputation. He's charged with our sin, and we're charged with his righteousness. And so we get to come before Almighty God as though we were sinless. And Christ takes the punishment that we deserve for our own sin. And Paul is reminding Philemon about Christ's imputation. If there's anything that Onesimus has done against you, charge that to my account. And he was reminding Philemon of Christ. 
And then thirdly, the third aspect of Christ's atonement, Paul reminds Philemon of, comes in verse 19. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it. I will repay it. Right, this is the concept of ransom or of redemption. To pay off a debt that someone else owes. And don't you know that's exactly what Christ is praying for you before his father? Father, by my own hands I have written it. I have repaid it. I have repaid the debt that he owes you. I have repaid the debt that she owes you on the cross. Your justice has been satisfied. Every sin that they have committed against you has been written off and I have paid the cost. Paul reminds Philemon of Christ's ransom, of Christ's redemption, of his beautiful atonement in these verses of the letter to Philemon. Paul's theology takes flight in his life. He's not just a theologian who keeps his head up in the clouds and knows all the right doctrine, is really proud of how he can elaborate upon it and find it in Scripture, but his belief determines his behavior so that his actions demonstrate the truth that Christ has wrought in his own life as he's willing to lay his own life on the line for Onesimus, his son, as he returns back to Philemon. And our theology should be just like Paul's, not just a head theology, but a theology that determines the way that we live our lives and the words that we speak and the actions that we take toward those who have wronged us. Now, what has the gospel changed about Philemon? It's a fair question to ask. Well, number one, it's changed their relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. Their relationship at one time was master and slave, and a useless slave at that. But now that Onesimus is a brother in Christ, that relationship is gone. That master-slave relationship as it once stood now stands in a different light as they are both brothers in Christ. Secondly, it's changed Philemon's Roman customs. Now, the punishment for runaways we briefly mentioned earlier in the Roman world was often one of these three things. Either the slave would be whipped with the cat of nine tails, you remember this, woven within the bands are shards of bone and pieces of metal to inflict maximum damage. They'd be whipped for running away. Or... They'd be burnt across their forehead with the Latin letters F-U-G, an abbreviation of the term fugitive. Or, if one of those two weren't enough, they would be killed. Now that's changing for Philemon. He's not going to carry out the penalty that Onesimus deserves under Roman culture. But not only that... He's going to flip on its head the Roman understanding of what's called manumission or the freeing of a slave. Now, for a Roman slave to be freed at the time, a a master could do that and it was often done for loyalty and good service. 
These were the two main reasons a Roman slave might be freed by his master. A particularly loyal slave over a long period of time who had wrought good service over his career. Let me tell you something. That does not describe Onesimus. Onesimus is the most disloyal slave that Philemon has ever had. He's run away from him and stolen from him and he's considered useless. He does not provide good service. But instead of following the Roman custom, Philemon as Paul hints throughout this letter, is likely going to free Onesimus from his slavery and send him back to Paul as a free man. Now, Paul doesn't outright explicitly ask him to do that, but all throughout his letter, he's dropping these hints to Philemon to send Onesimus back as a free man. And so, their Roman culture is changed. The customs that they grew up with are changed. The gospel has changed those things for them. And Philemon is able to pardon Onesimus because he has been pardoned by Christ. And this is Onesimus' second pardon. Now, how about you? To whom do you need to go for a second pardon? Who have you wronged? Who do you owe? To whom do you need to go for a second pardon? Or to whom do you need to extend a second pardon? Who has wronged you? Who owes you something? To whom do you need to extend a second pardon? I could use the language of Paul. I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. If that person has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to Christ's account, he will repay it to say nothing of your owing him even your own self. Confident of your obedience, I know you will do even more than I say. Above all others, above all others, Christians should be the joyful extenders of pardon. Above all others, followers of Christ should be the joyful extenders of pardon. Right In this short letter, we see the profound, life-changing, society-altering power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It takes a hardened prisoner like Harold Morris and makes him a son of God. It takes an insubordinate sailor perpetuating the slave trade like John Newton and makes him a destroyer of that very same evil. It takes a useless, runaway slave like Onesimus and makes him a useful, beloved brother. It takes a scandalized slave owner like Philemon and makes him the joyful grantor of pardon. The pardon we receive in Jesus 
changes everything. The pardon you have received in Jesus, it changes everything. And if we can see Christ here in Paul's letter to Philemon, it will transform our lives. It will change our lives and we will be like Onesimus. We will be like Paul. We will be like Philemon as our lives reflect the life of Jesus Christ, the one who has been our substitute, who has imputed his righteousness to us and who has been the recipient of the punishment of our sin, who has paid the ransom and redeemed us from the kingdom of darkness. The pardon that we receive in Jesus changes everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've considered this day two of the shortest books in your canon, we are amazed at the power that these few words hold as they communicate the beauty of the gospel. There's no aspect of your word, there's no portion of your word that is without power. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would take what we have heard this day from your word and penetrate it to the deepest parts of our soul so that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind and conformed to Christ's image. That we would be beloved brothers and sisters that we would no longer be useless, but that we would be useful. And that like Paul, who emulates Christ, we would be the joyful granters of pardon, even to those we consider our enemies. By the power of your Spirit, we can do this. And we ask that it would be so. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.